Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. Um, just a lot of little things are where we are having Sunday school. Sunday school's back. Had our first um, adult one over here in the Fellowship Center this morning at 9 o'clock. And um, we also have one upstairs, and uh, Weston's teaching that. We also have a youth and the children are back to Sunday school. If you have any questions, contact us here at the church. Right now it's looking like uh, next week, it's, the Sunday school hour is going to depend on where we're worshiping. And right now it's looking like we'll probably be indoors next week. And so my gut level is that Sunday school will be at 10 o'clock um next sunday remember the lakeside blood drive is friday december 4th if you want to be a part of that uh look at the e-letters that are going out maybe i think there's a there's a link on the web page too All operation christmas child boxes you really need to get them in today we're taking them somewhere tomorrow uh maybe you can drop them in real early in the morning tomorrow but uh try to get them into us today or and let us know if uh you need some help with that. Also, our the the winter coat, uh, you know, drive that we're doing, uh, sleeping bags, winter hats, any of that kind of thing. We're gathering those. Uh, you'll see some of them already are being laid down in the lobby. We got some in the office. Uh, but if that's something you want to share, uh, this is uh, uh, for um, homeless people and, and just being able to uh, help them out during the cold weather. Uh, we have the bake sale. Okay, now if you cook for that bake sale. Uh, you need to have uh, your goods here and in the fellowship center no later than two o'clock um, on on uh, uh, let's see Tuesday. And then if you want to pick them up, picking them up from four to six this coming Tuesday in the fellowship center. Uh, also know that um, uh, the table talks. We have November's table talk here. Uh, the devotional. We also have the December, and they'll be out next week. We got those uh, three weeks before we got the November. I do not know why. And then rem remember, uh, uh, note that uh, tomorrow uh, here at the church, we'll be having the funeral service for Will Butler at 10 o'clock. There's a visitation starting at 9. There's also a visitation this evening from uh, this afternoon from 3 to 5. Well, good morning, everybody. Tell you that you are at the right place at the right time uh, to hear the gospel proclaimed this morning. Uh, I've got a few warnings for you. Uh, the deacons have let me know that there are dangerous pine cones falling from the trees everywhere. So uh, most of us didn't wear hard hats, but it's just one of the dangers of coming to church in these days. We have, uh, we have the threat of, of COVID, and now we have the threat of pine cones as well. Um, God is good, and we will get through this as well. Um, I do want to take a minute, I know Jim mentioned it, but to remember our brother Will Butler. Will Butler passed from this world to the next and is with Jesus Christ. He was a great man who uh, deserves just a moment of our thoughts this morning as he led our deacons in so many great ways of selfless service and at 84 years of age passed on and is with Jesus now. Like we said, thanks be to God for his life. We will be remembering it tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning. And if you'd like to come and, and, and pay respects to family, like Jim said, you can do so at 9 in the morning, or you can do so this afternoon between 3 and 5 here in the church. I want to call us to worship now as we begin the worship on this Lord's Day uh, by using the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you've got strong legs, legs and a strong back, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. And uh, I'm going to ask you this question. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I want to invite you to stay standing as we sing together this morning.
one of the great truths that we recognize um, within Scripture is its unity. Um, Reformed Presbyterians, we understand that there's one great covenant of grace from beginning to end. There are many different administrations, and very often when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Noah and David and Moses, um, they're all in various administrations of that, and the greatest and fullest administration is the new covenant, uh, that we all are a part of that. And so that great continuity we recognize throughout the scriptures. And so we understand there is one great promise given in the Old Testament, and then its fulfillment ultimately is given in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so the people of God have always been justified in only one way, by faith. In the Old Testament, it's faith in the promise. In the New Testament, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the, the, the great, and, 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 all, and ultimately, God has always been very interested in the family. And so Adam's sin put all his family, which is all of us, into a sinful condition. The last Adam's righteousness, Jesus Christ, all those that joined themselves to him as their brother are now part of his family um, in righteousness. Noah, um, he and his family were saved. And so God told Abraham, you and your family, your descendants, are to receive this sign of the, the covenant, which was circumcision. Peter says, speaking to those same Jews, now something is the same here, but something's also a little bit different. What is the same is this promise of salvation is for you and your children, as many as our Lord calls. The one great difference is that under the promise, looking forward to the New Testament, the sign was circumcision. And it was a bloody, painful sign. But it looked to the bloody, painful death of the cross. And since that sign, the one big change is the sign has changed. It's now baptism, and it's about cleansing. And so now we're going to have us a wonderful baptism. We're going to have an infant uh, that is going to be baptized. And it's not that the salvation comes with the sign um, in the sense that by receiving baptism, they're saved. Um, but rather, there's the promise there that says when this child reaches out to God, God will be there in Christ, honor the sign, and save the child. Greatest privileges of the church is to be able to baptize our children. And so we're going to invite the Bird family uh, to come uh, forward now and those who are going to be standing with you as well. We're going to be baptizing Avery Lee Bird this morning. Oh, my goodness. She is ready. <laughs> Nathan and Alexa. First off, Alexa, uh, I think it was you that was baptized here in this church what, 32 some odd years ago. Praise God for that. Here we stand again. And I start off with questions for the family, uh, for Nathan and Alexa. Uh, here's the question I have for you. Do you acknowledge Avery's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you? Do you claim God's covenant promises and benefits for Avery? And by faith, do you look to the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of her as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate Avery to God? And do you promise by relying on God's power and grace through the Holy Spirit to live an exemplary life before them? Do you commit yourself to pray with and for Avery and to teach her the scriptures and the great articles of our faith in Jesus Christ? And do you promise to use every means provided by God, including faithful participation in the life of the church to bring Avery up in the discipline of the Lord? Okay, hearing that, I've got a question for the church, and I can't walk too forward or it'll start making noises here. Um, we do not have godparents in the Presbyterian church. That's why there's you know, no, no uh, friends standing up here with you. What we do is we have a church that assumes that for the, for the whole church. And so I ask you this question to the church. Um, do you, members of this congregation, acting for yourselves and on behalf of the whole body of Christ, assume responsibility with these parents for the spiritual nurture of Avery? Do you? Now, take seriously what you've said here 
when someone from the church office calls to ask you to teach Sunday school. You've made a vow and a pledge, and we expect you to honor that, okay, before the Lord. It is time uh, to do some baptizing. And uh, the deacons assured me that the water was warm. We're about to find out. <laughs> Avery, come here. Let me see you. What is the Christian name of this child? Avery Lee Bird, child of the covenant. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Y'all want to see Avery? This is the closest we can get. Hey, look at that smile, Avery. Child of the covenant. Let's, uh, let's pray together, friends. Uh, Father, we thank you for this child. We ask your blessing over her all the days of her life. We look forward to that day where she will profess faith in Jesus Christ and join that visible church family. God, to you be all glory as we look forward to that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You did so good. A few weeks ago, we spoke of David bringing the ark into the temple. And, and, and there's a great song in, in the Chronicles that, that uh, uh, gives his, uh, his thanksgiving and his rejoicing. And I wanted to read just a little bit of that, especially in light of this week. We have particular emphasis upon um, thankfulness, uh, especially in our nation. He says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord... O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we gather this day before you in the splendor of holiness, none other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we declare your glory among the nations, confessing Jesus is Lord. We do this in our proclamation of the gospel, our praise and worship, our works of obedience, even as we baptize in accordance with your great commission. We freely confess this day that your thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are your ways our ways. You are of heaven and we are of earth, and yet... By the mercies of your gospel, we have been enlightened. You have with him in glory. This is why we confess our sins, assured that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why we put on love, the perfect bond of unity. This is why we put on Jesus, seeking to be faithful to his word. Remember us now as we give. Let our obedience in this worship be made acceptable through the shed blood of your Son, our Savior. This we ask in the name of Jesus, he who alone is true in a world of worthless idols, praying as he taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
If you would, please stand with me. each promise of his word when winter fades I know spring will come the Lord is my salvation in times of waiting times
cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy stone, Messiah still and all Thursday is Thanksgiving, and uh, a lot of us are going to have some broken traditions. I, I don't think anyone's, uh, but our immediate family is going to be together. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, in our family, there's some people who are worried about travel. 
So uh, it'll be a different for us. But, but we're thankful. And one of the things that I am really thankful for this morning is that we have another beautiful day. I mean, uh, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I had someone from Compassion International in the office the other day. They were talking to me about uh, mission opportunity. And they said, how's your attendance? And I said, in the last few weeks, we've been back to pre-COVID numbers. And they said, we've been all over the country. We've never heard another pastor say that. And it, it, it's been a blessing. It's been partially because we've been able to be outside. It, it's, it's all because God's been gracious to us. And so uh, we recognize it as a blessing, and we're going to ride it as long as we can. That being said, looks like rain next Sunday, so start praying now. Um, if we got to go back in, we will. But here, here's the deal. We're going to ride it. We're even looking at Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't know what y'all think about Christmas Eve. Uh, it, it's always been an important part of, of my life and my, uh, my faith life. I love the, the candle lighting service, right? I love being with my church family and doing that. And we were like, how do you, you know, we would have 400, 500 people come into the city. We can't do that. So we're left with a couple choices. Uh, one is we string Christmas lights in the trees and you put on a warm coat and we come outside for 45 minutes under the Christmas lights and we light the candles, and, and we've even got these fake candles that have like, because we're like, if it's windy, we can't do that. So we've got like these LED candles if we have to go to those. Uh, but we're praying that, that God's going to be gracious and we'll be able to be outside even on Christmas Eve. And we don't know how long this lasts. Maybe uh, January, February, we've got to be in there bundled up. And uh, maybe March, it begins to open up for us again. Well, we don't know, but as long as we can, we're going to try to be outside. I want to start today's sermon with a, a little bit of Psalm 25. That, that, that's a psalm of David, and it's going to introduce a theme for us this morning. Psalm 25 begins like this. Um, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Isn't that interesting? Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame they shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. This is a psalm of David. David writes it. And if you're following along, if you haven't figured this out yet, we've got a sheet which we list off most of every scripture that I'm going to reference. And it makes sense. It makes sense to take home and, and maybe look at too. It ties a bunch of things together. But this is a psalm of David. And it's a simple prayer. And, and the prayer is this. The prayer from David is, God, don't let me be put to shame. And shame comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? I mean, imagine, uh, if I'm guessing here, one person who sits out here today has not experienced some sort of shame. And in the moment, it feels like your shame might define you forever. Do you know this feeling? Do you, do you know the feeling of shame? Have you ever felt uh, in a situation where you really messed up and all of a sudden well, you, you made a mistake and everyone can see you? Everyone knows what you've done and there's nowhere to hide. And shame, one thing I've learned about shame in, in my years is that it doesn't really work in isolation. If, if you're by yourself, you might feel guilty, but you need other people in order to experience true shame. Someone else has to kind of be looking at you and judging you. We're ashamed when other people see our mistakes, our failures, our deformities, or whatever it is that brings us shame. Um, I once... This is okay. So I told a story one time, a long time ago, and I remember one of our deacons, a guy by the name of Kendall Jackson, came up to me afterwards and said, "Preacher, I don't know, I would have shared that story." And this is one of those stories. This is one of those I'm gonna look back later and go, well, "Was that really necessary for me to share that?" But I once played in a little league baseball game, and all I can remember is uh, I was playing center field, uh, and and the the, the most the, the strongest memory is that I had to use the restroom so bad. And all of my uh, all of my teammates were there. All their parents were there watching. All my schoolmates were there watching. And we were wearing those bright white baseball pants that they put kids in. And no matter what happened, uh, our team couldn't seem to record one single out. Like like we tried, they couldn't get anybody out. And and the the, the batters kept fouling off balls. And the coach was you know ten minutes of that, and then they changed pitchers. And time was just moving in slow motion, and I started doing that dance that you do. I was kind of moving back and forth in the outfield, and what began as discomfort for me turned into a serious emergency in center field. 
I had a serious problem that was about to happen. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. And listen, I want to say this, and I want to be as clear as possible. As a nine-year-old boy, I would have been 100% fine to wet my pants alone. It would not have bothered me one bit. I don't think I would have cared had it happened in private as long as no one knew about it. But with the crowd, there came shame. With the crowd, there came embarrassment. And I'm sure none of you have had an experience like this, have you? Is it just me? Uh, No one else has dropped their lunch tray in the crowded lunchroom, or no one else has got up to give a speech with their zipper down. I've done all those things. My first few years of ministry, that's one of the things Cammie would check. She said one of the biggest fears is that you're going to get up there and your zipper's going to be down. So she was always uh, making sure I was taken care of in those ways. And as, as embarrassing as those kind of things feel to us, they often pale in comparison to like life's big mistakes. Like the, like the 15-year-old girl who uh, gets pregnant out of wedlock. That kind of shame. The husband who gets discovered cheating on his wife. That kind of shame. Or the employee who gets caught embezzling money. There is shame when our sins become public. And, and sometimes there's these situations where, um, where sin leads to shame, and there's other situations where our shame has nothing to do with our sin. Sometimes we feel shame because uh, we don't look like we think we should. Or maybe our figure, the way our body looks, isn't, isn't the way we think it should, should look. Or maybe we have something wrong with our skin, and when people look at us, we get an overwhelming sense of shame, and it's a shame that's not there when we're alone, but when people look at us and we go out, there it comes. And what we begin to recognize is that, that shame is, is really about not measuring up to some kind of standard. That's why when we, uh, when we sin, our shame uh, kind of comes upon us because we don't measure up to God's standard. We also experience shame when we don't measure up to some perceived standard of beauty that we have. Um, when we think that I, I should look like that, and because I don't, when people look at me, I feel ashamed. And, um, I think guys get a little bit of this. I, I've never met a guy who really wants to be ugly. I mean, we all, we all want to be good looking, but, but it's not as bad as it is for women. For women, it seems to be intensified. The standard that women use to measure themselves by is almost unattainable. And as a result, uh, most women wrestle with some level of shame because they don't look exactly like the standard that they have bought into. David's prayer, once again, was this. I'm going to remind you. God, I put my trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame. And then David adds this line. He says this. Indeed, no one who waits on you shall be put to shame. And so the question I ask this morning is, is it possible that waiting on the Lord can free you from shame? Will that work with the shame of sin? Will it work with the shame of not being physically perfect? Uh, Will it work with the shame of people knowing about your secret stuff? Can waiting on the Lord really heal your shame? And we're going to look at that today. We've been talking about thankfulness over the past four weeks. It makes sense. This is a season where, as a country, we kind of exercise Thanksgiving. And as Christians, shouldn't we be leading in that? Uh, This Thursday's celebration will be of Thanksgiving. And so what we're going to spend our time on this morning is the story of a woman in the Bible who moved from shame to Thanksgiving, and it's the biblical account of a woman named Hannah. You know the story in the Bible of of Hannah? We talked about earlier, shame needs, it it really needs two things to work, right? Uh, The first thing that shame needs to work is it's kind of an agreed-upon standard that you're failing to live up to. And the other thing that it needs is other people to look at you and see it. Those are the two ingredients for shame. In today's story, the, the assumed standard that Hannah does not meet is this standard of what is a good wife. You see, Hannah and her husband, they, they loved each other very much. They, they even had what seems like kind of a nice marriage. Hannah seems like a classy lady, her husband seems to be smitten with her. He really is. He, he loves her. There's just one problem. The standard that Hannah judges herself by 
is a standard that says this. It says a good wife produces children for her husband, and Hannah just happens to be barren. She feels like she doesn't live up to the standard of what it means to be a good wife, and this becomes the first ingredient in the recipe of shame. Hannah's barren, and she is ashamed. One of the things I found interesting, I was writing an article a, a few months back about barrenness in the Bible. Have you ever taken time to think through the amount of, of women in the Bible who have a, a hard time conceiving? It's almost really like a who's who of women in the Bible. Uh, when you look through it, it's Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of, of, of Isaac, Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, was also barren. It's almost as if when you trace the lineage of, of, of the covenant, conception only happens after it's proved to be impossible. And the children that are born of barren mothers, if you ever thought about the children in the Bible who were born of mothers who were barren, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. Is that not a theme? Is that not strong in the Bible? I, I want to say this, and I don't know, uh, this is always painful things to talk about, but if you're a woman and, and you have struggles to conceive, I want you to know that that is a very biblical beginning to your story. And I, I don't know uh, what God has in store for you, but I do know that God is, is, is sovereign and God is loving and that his word promises that no one who waits on the Lord shall be put to shame. Let's look at Hannah's story in the Bible and see how Hannah goes from shame to thanksgiving. Uh, before we read our text, let's, let's grab just a little context into the story. Uh, Hannah is married to a man named Elkanah. And what we can tell from Elkanah is that he really loves Hannah. He seems to be the kind of husband that you would want. He, he leads his family in worship. Once a year, Elkanah takes his family up to Shiloh, and he offers sacrifices of the Lord uh, there. And his, his, so his family takes this trip every year. What a great man. He takes his family on a trip to worship to the Lord. And on one hand, Elkanah is, is a great husband. And on the other hand, there's something in this story that really negatively affects his relationship with Hannah. And that is that, that Elkanah has a second wife. And that will always mess things up. I, I've, I've taken a survey. It's never a good thing to have two wives. Uh, I can barely handle one. And so that brings me to just kind of discuss something outside real quick. Let's talk for a second about uh, the Bible and polygamy as a practice. I, I want to say this. Yes, you read about polygamy in the Bible, but I've got to make a, a distinction for you. Uh, in no way is polygamy in the Bible to be proscriptive. It's simply descriptive. And let me explain the difference between being prescriptive and descriptive. The Bible tells the story of God's people, right? And as it does, it often includes details about their brokenness. It includes details about their sin. And as we read these stories about the people in the Bible, we have to uh, have wisdom to discern between when the Bible's prescribing behavior from their lives and when the Bible is just describing something that they do that might be sinful. For instance, uh, take, take for instance David and Bathsheba, right? Have you ever in your life heard someone make the case that because David takes another man's wife, that taking another man's wife is actually biblical? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Because we understand that that part of the Bible is not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. It's just describing what happened. It's not trying to prescribe that into our lives. But then in comes polygamy, right? And, and I've heard religious critics say, well, there's polygamy in the Bible. What do you have to say about that? And my answer is unwavingly, yes, polygamy is in the Bible. It was part of the culture of that time. And no, polygamy is not God's will. And further, what we see in the, in the biblical accounts of polygamy is nothing but conflict and brokenness every time we see it. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? Sarah... Uh, was barren. We've talked about this. And Abraham wanted children. So Abraham turns around and marries Sarah's servant Hagar, and they have babies. And their result is conflict and brokenness all over the place because two wives do not a happy house make, right? I think we've established that. And the story of Hannah, we come to today, it's, it's a similar story. Elkanah loves Hannah, but she can't have children. And Elkanah wants descendants in his life, so for the sake of children, he marries a woman named Penina. And, and this woman, Penina, easily conceives children. And 
after that, Hannah is left swimming in shame because of her barrenness. Again, shame has two ingredients, some agreed upon standards, which Hannah thinks she doesn't live up to. And now there's another woman in the house who is able to witness her failure. And the second wife really adds to her shame. I want you to come and see what I mean. We're going to be reading uh, 1 Samuel 1, 3 through 20. And uh, as we prepare to read, I want to invite you to stand. We do this in reverence of the word of God read. We are positioning our hearts, positioning our bodies to be subject to God's word. And before we read, let's pray. Father, we do come to your word. Looking at Hannah's shame and seeing in some sense our own. Also seeing what this all points to in Jesus. God, may you, uh, by your spirit, quicken our hearts to see this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and also to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept, would not eat. And Elkanah, said, or Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. He was deeply distressed and, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor, no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a troubled, or I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the, woman, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. And the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What happens on this family trip is that Elkanah takes both of his wives up to sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. It's a, it's a family pilgrimage to worship. And Elkanah offers a sacrifice to the Lord, and he takes portions of meat from the sacrifice to give to his family. So he gives a portion to Penina, and then he gives a portion to all of Penina's children. Those would be children that he's fathered. And Elkanah gives a double portion of meat to Hannah. It seems to suggest that, that Hannah is uniquely important and valuable to him. Now look at verse 6. It says this, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's rival is, of course, Penina. 
And Penina would say things to Hannah like, you're not a good wife because you can't provide for your husband an heir. And there, there's nothing worse than having a rival. And there's nothing worse than being mocked. And it's awful. And, and I think about this, and I think this is probably why only about half of you come to church after the Egg Bowl, is that you just can't handle being mocked by your rivals. And you know what happens. I mean, after the Egg Bowl, attendance comes down way down here. It's, it's, some of y'all just don't want to show your faces. Verse 7 says this, that this, this turned into an annual pattern in Hannah's life. Every Once a year, they would go down for, for this kind of family worship trip. And other times, apparently, these women didn't have much contact through the year. But once a year on this family trip, they, when they went to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, Penina would shame Hannah for being barren. And Hannah would get so upset, she wouldn't even want to eat. And her husband, Elkanah, says in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more than you, enough of you than ten sons? And listen, if you ask me, that, that's some typical husband talk right there. He, he's trying. He, he's not really great at it. I mean, that, that's kind of, he's trying to fix it. Listen, it, it, no, you're not as much as, 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 as seven sons. She wants a child. But he's not great at comforting her. After, after the meal, Hannah gets up and she goes to the temple. She's brokenhearted. She's ashamed. She's desperate. Scripture says she does two things seemingly simultaneously. She prays and she weeps. Praying and she's weeping. And that's really a godly response to shame. And what she says is this in verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all his days, uh, and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah tells the Lord, if you give me a child, I will give that child back to you. And she says, no razor will touch his head. Now, what she is describing there is a Nazarite vow. Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, it, it's a vow that's described in Numbers uh, 6, 2 through 6. You can see your insert. I, I put that in there if you want to read it. But this, this vow was established for someone who wanted to separate himself to the Lord. In order to keep this vow, you would have to do a few things. First, you would not drink alcohol or wine or anything to do with grapes. I don't know, just to be sure that you didn't get something that was fermented. You would just stay away from grapes in general. You would never cut your hair, and you would never be around a dead body, and that had to do with cleanliness. And Hannah's saying to God, it's like, if you'll give me a child, uh, that child will live by this Nazarite vow, and then it will be set aside for you. And as she's praying, Eli the priest is also there, and he mistakes her prayers and her weeping for the slurs of a drunken woman. Eli, if you look in the Bible, I don't mean to speak ill of him, but he's not really known to be a very perceptive guy. Like, he doesn't seem to know what's happening in his own house or with his own sons, and there he just kind of misunderstands, misreads the situation in general. And so he says to her, he kind of accuses her of being drunk. He says, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. And Hannah, she's pretty humble in her response, I think. You know, I think you put a lot of women up there who, who come to the church to pray, and if, if you have a pastor who comes up and says, hey, you drunk, get out of here, they're probably not going to, they might have something to say back to that, that pastor that, that's less than respectful. But Hannah, she, she's really respectful. She says, uh, I'm not drunk, my Lord. I'm troubled in spirit. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't think of me as, as a worthless woman. I'm, I'm just heartbroken. And Eli stands corrected, and he, he figures out what's happening, and, and he speaks what is, amounts to a benediction over Hannah. And he says to her this, he says, he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, uh, it's my understanding that Eli had no idea what he was granting or what he was kind of promising on behalf of God. He just says, May God grant whatever it is that you have, the, the petition that you've brought before him. And Hannah went away, and Scripture says that she is no longer sad. Something had happened in her tears and her prayers and she receives that word from Eli as a promise, a promise that her shame would be no more. Hannah's family got up early the next morning. They worshiped. They returned home to, to Ramah. And sometime later, Hannah conceived, and she bore a son named Samuel, which means heard by God. And as Hannah had promised, she returned to Eli the priest. She comes back uh, knowing that he was a guy of, uh, you know, who, who was gracious to her, at least after he figured what happened. 
and she's going to present Samuel to Eli, saying, she's kind of reminding him of who she is. She says, I'm, I'm the woman who was once standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. That's who I was. Uh, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as Samuel lives, he is lent to the Lord. And, and what's interesting is, Hannah is willing to leave her only son with Eli the priest. And, and you might think that she would be heartbroken over this, but she wasn't. Hannah is just thankful. God had not only given her a son to love, but God had freed Hannah in many ways from her shame. There was, there was no way that, that her rival Penina could ever again say that you are barren. I want to tell you that the bottom line is this, that God had a plan for Hannah's life. And for some reason, I can't tell you why, that, that plan involves shame. And make no mistake, God wasn't punishing Hannah, but the mystery of God's character-shaping work is that sometimes he uses shame for his people. I want to ask you this question as, as we reflect on this verse today. and The question is this, have you ever been through a season of shame? I joked about a little one when I was younger and nine years old playing baseball, but I've, I've known real seasons of shame too. I've known seasons where I've made a mistake and people found out about that mistake and they looked at me differently. Have you ever been through a season like that? Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe it feels like it's never going to go away. I get that. I know what shame feels like. Sometimes shame is a result of, of your rebellion. And, and the reason I think I can say that pretty clearly is, is, is just to use as an example the Garden of Eden. Uh, take In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, we read that Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. Then Adam and Eve rebel in the Garden, and Adam is said then to be ashamed of his nakedness. Rebellion leads to shame. So, for instance, if, if you have stolen money and... If you've cheated, if you've lied, you're going to be left in a state of shame. And I just want to say this, that is not God's plan for you. We read in Scripture the promise of the gospel that Christ came to take your shame upon himself. He suffered the sin of your rebellion on the cross. And so my word for you today is to repent and believe and let go of your shame. Shame is not God's plan for you. Here's uh, is God's promise about shame. I want to read it very clearly. It's found in Romans 10, 11. And it says this, Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. I, I don't know. I, just, I feel like someone here maybe needs to hear that today. I'm, this is generally not a place that I go, but, but I think that someone here maybe today is really wrestling with, with shame. Maybe it's the shame of their sin. Maybe it's the shame of their appearance. But, but you're wrestling with shame, and you really need to hear today that everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame, that your destiny is not shame, but rather that your destiny is glory. That's what Romans teaches. Romans teaches that our destiny is glory. Romans 8.30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All who belong to Christ are bound for glory. And there is no shame in glory. God's plan for his people is not to be left in shame. It's to be raised in glory and once in glory to be there in worshiping Christ. Hannah models for us a proper response when the Lord frees her from shame. And if you were to look from the first chapter of 1 Samuel to the second chapter of 1 Samuel, what you'll see in the second chapter of 1 Samuel is that Hannah prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And it goes something like this, at least in the beginning. It says, My heart exalts in the Lord, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Here is my thanksgiving challenge for you this week as you go about your life. Uh, maybe you'll be at your smoker, or maybe you'll be in the oven, or maybe you'll be at your Thanksgiving table. I want you to think back to a time when you were ashamed. And I want you to give thanks to God that he has freed you from that shame. 
be a great Thanksgiving exercise for you. If you are at a place right now where you still feel shame, I want you instead to thank God for his promise to deliver you from shame. I want you to own it. I want you to believe in it. I want you to say it again, God, I believe that you have, have come and died, that I don't have to live in this shame, but am bound for glory. And there will be in your soul a battle to believe this. Because the evil one wants you to believe that you are shameful, that you are not beloved by the Father, that you are not fearfully and wonderfully made. The evil one loves for you to feel shame, to feel alone, to hate yourself. And this is one of the battles that we have in our souls. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Isn't it funny that uh, your shame depends upon what you believe or who you believe? If you believe the crowd, if you believe the accuser, you will be filled with shame. If you believe the promises of God, you will believe that you have been redeemed of your, sh of your shame and your heart will swell as Hannah's did with thanksgiving. The challenge this thanksgiving is to believe the gospel, to let go of shame, and to have a heart of thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hope to see you back next week. I hope the God uh, who we love provides us with great weather, and even not, we will be thankful of all things when we're inside in masks. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have known shame. And we're reminded that, uh, that no one has known shame like Jesus. That on the cross, when he took upon himself all of our sin, what shame was there? Christ humbled himself, and God, you exalted him. And our prayer today is, is just a prayer of worship of Jesus Christ. Uh, you, the one who takes our shame, may you be exalted forever and ever. May our thanksgiving be one that is, that is kind of grounded in this idea that you have redeemed us and bound us for glory. For all these in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the church said, Amen. Very thankful uh, to be singing songs outside with you and to be worshiping our God on the Lord's Day. I take it as a privilege, not a right, something that we are blessed to have. I pray for you and your health and those in your family as well. Uh, on a matter of a quick announcement, if, if the deacons could hang out afterwards for a little while, 
I think uh, Jim can help direct you to some work that needs to happen. If, if there's some elders that don't have places to go, you can help as well. We're going to just get things ready for the visitation that's going to come this afternoon. For the rest of you, receive this benediction. We have been the church gathered. Go and be the church scattered. Take with you the good news of Jesus Christ. Take it to your, your, your kitchen tables. Take it to your Thanksgiving tables. Share it with your family. Share it with your coworkers. As you do, take with you the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus, His Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Let's sing once more. To God be the glory. To Wonderful to worship with you. Happy Thanksgiving. Until next week, God bless.